You all remember the movie The Karate Kid? Okay, now it's got to be the first one all the way back to 1984 with Pat Morita and Ralph Macchio. Not the, not the newer one, um, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not the one where he, he was. He was trying to catch the fly, right? Forgot about that part. Um, th- this is a movie that I think is just a classic, and, and it's, it's such a metaphor um, for life. And so I wanted to just remind you of one of the key parts. If you remember the story, first of all, it's a classic hero's journey, right? Um, the, the Karate Kid, I can't even remember his green name, but, uh, but he comes from New Jersey, and he comes all the way to California. He's brought there by his mother. He doesn't like it. It's all different. Everything's wrong. He's getting bullied in school. Everything is going down the, down the tubes for him. But the caretaker in their apartment complex is this, this little Japanese man, and he starts to get to know him. He's really gruff and grumpy at first, but finds out that he is a karate master, or at least knows karate, right? And the boys that have been bullying him all study at this dojo, Cobra Kai, in town. And so he's getting beaten up and he's getting bullied. And so he finally begs the, uh, the old gentleman, Mr. Miyagi, to uh, teach him karate. So he says, all right, you know, show up at my house. And he does, of course. And the first thing he says, okay, I want you to wax my cars. And it's just not just one car. He's got like this whole fleet of these classic cars, right? He says, I want you to wax the cars. But when you do, you must do it exactly like this. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. All right. So he's going through all the cars, and he finally gets the cars done. He says, okay, he's building a new deck and fence and all this stuff. He says, I want you to sand the floor. But when you sand the floor, you have to do it like this. Then like this. Exactly like this. And when he gets finished with that, I want you to paint the fence. But when you paint the fence, it has to be just like this, up and down, up and down. And then afterwards, it's side to side, side to side. So he's doing all these tasks, doing all this work for weeks and weeks on end. And he's finally had it. And there's this great scene at night where he's just finishing up. And he, he just tears into Miyagi. And he says, I'm just being your personal slave for all this time. He says, I'm not learning anything about karate. I am out of here. And he starts to walk away. You know, Daniel-san. Oh, I just remembered his name. Daniel-san. Daniel-san, come here. You know, he comes and he says, he says, show me, send the floor. <laughs> the boy starts to get down on it. No, 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 not down on your knees. Stand up, stand up. You know, show me, send the floor. And he's going, taking him through it. Show me, wax on, wax off. And he shows him, and he says, show me, paint the fence, side to side, up and down, okay? And then he just hauls off, and he gives this blood-curdling scream, and he throws a punch directly at his face, and the kid just automatically blocks it with wax off, blocks it with wax on, the next punch, and the next punch, and then a kick. And then he just does a combination, and he blocks successfully every single one of them. It's a great scene, and then he tells him to bow, you know, but always, always look high, always look high. This is such a great scene because the boy did not realize that he was learning the moves he needed to learn. He was learning them in such a way that he was building not only muscle memory, but he was building the muscle strength that he would need to actually block these punches. Why do you think that Miyagi didn't tell him what he was doing so he could have, you know, avoided that scene where he got so angry after weeks and weeks and weeks? Because if he told him what he was doing, the boy would have brought everything that he thought he knew about karate into that movement and just mucked it all up. It needed to be a pure movement that he had no idea what he was doing so that he could just do it over and over and over until it was deep down into his muscles. 
This is that metaphor for life. To be able to just do a task without understanding what the deeper significance of the task really is. This is what Miyagi was doing for the boy, and he gets it after a while. But to be able to find a task within the task is the key, even if we're not aware of what it is. When you think about it, what is the purpose of your life? What is the purpose of any life? Why are we here breathing on this planet? What are we doing? Is it just to live as long as possible? Is it to gain as much as we practically can in order that, that we can have some sort of advantage for ourselves? Now, regardless of how you answer the question, and I know you wouldn't have answered it that way, maybe you were thinking love, maybe you were thinking presence, maybe you were thinking connection, maybe you were thinking a lot of different things to be able to serve God. Maybe that's your sense of purpose. Whatever you came up as an answer for that question, it's not the real answer until you consider what you think about all day long and what you do all day long as a result of what you think about all day long. I mean, what's really running in your mind all day long? What are you really thinking about? You're thinking about your job? You're thinking about your career? Thinking about your business? Thinking about your kids? That's not bad. But are you thinking about your finances, maybe? Thinking about retirement and how the heck you're going to finance that? That's big on a lot of people's minds, I know. Are you thinking about politics? Are you thinking about world events and everything that's going on and how, how frightening it's becoming as the world moves in these directions it's moving? Are you thinking about health issues? The doctor's appointment that you have to have, the scan that's coming up next week and what that might yield for you. Are you thinking about religion? Are you thinking about end times? That seems to be a popular topic uh, about these, these days. Those persistent thoughts that you're having, those compulsive thoughts that keep running over and over and over direct our actions, direct our behavior, and direct our allocation of time day in and day out. What we're thinking about all day long becomes the action, the behavior that we exhibit all day long. So whatever you consciously say you believe about your purpose, our thoughts and our behavior way deep down in unconscious core beliefs, that's what actually is driving the bus. That's what we really believe. And it's all, a lot of it, fear-based. And so to try to get to this idea of purpose, what we really believe is important. Now, I believe that our purpose here is connection, and I've said that many times. For us humans here living in space-time, right, connection, identification with each other, identification with everything that is, including whatever our concept of God is, that connection is the reason we're here. We're here to learn how to do that. And we're learn, learn to do it that we're here to learn how to do that as human beings who have this conscious mind that is working against us and have these emotions that are coursing through us that are working against us, separating us out from everything and, and breaking our connection. But connection is really all of it. So does that mean that I'm not supposed to be thinking about those things? Job, career, family, politics, current events, health issues. I'm not supposed to be thinking about all those things that are running through my head? Well, of course not. But if what, does, what it does mean 
is that I shouldn't be so overly focused on them that I lose the sense of connection at the same time. Now, there's a catch here. If I don't take those physical tasks that I was just talking to you about, the outward task, those things that are always running through our minds, if I don't take those seriously enough, if you don't take them seriously enough, if you're not working flat out to do the best you can, striving for excellence in everything that you do, then you won't be able to complete the task that lies within that task, those tasks. But on the other hand, if you take those physical tasks too seriously, if they become an end in themselves, then you'll never start the task within. You won't even know that it exists. So there's a delicate balance here that we're trying to strike. Now to an observer just looking at you, before and after you've learned to negotiate this balance, you may look exactly the same to them. You're working just as hard. You're just as focused on trying to fix the things that need to be fixed and, and, and get to an outcome that you're working for. But internally, everything has changed, and you know the difference. The tail is no longer wagging the dog. <laughs> the tail is no longer wagging the dog. It's a whole different experience to the work that you're actually doing. Because now, you're working just as hard, but you're still able to see the connection that lies inside the task. Whatever it is you're doing, whether you're working at a computer screen, whether you're working at a checkout stand, whether you're building a house, whatever it is that you're doing, you can see how this connects to real lives. People that you love, people that you don't even know. You can make that connection if you have this balance that we're talking about. And then the physical tasks become infused with new meaning, with new energy, new purpose. Because you realize that the task that you're also accomplishing at the same time is not just a temporal one. It doesn't end at the headstone with everything else that we do here. But it's eternal. It's going to continue on. And we're going to be able to continue on with it. All the difference in the world and so what are we really doing when we're doing what we do all day long? What is it that we're really doing? What is it that we're really learning? I wanted to take it down to the child level because I like to do that. And I'm sure if many of you have heard of Maria Montessori, right? Those famous Montessori schools, and she worked with children. But take a listen to this couple paragraphs and see how she looked at the play of the child. She says... Play is the work of the child. Play activities are essential to healthy development for children and adolescents. Research, research shows that 75% of brain development occurs after birth. 75% of brain development occurs after birth. Wow. The activities engaged in by children both stimulate and influence the pattern of the connections made between the nerve cells. This process influences the development of fine and gross motor skills, language, socialization, personal awareness, emotional well-being, creativity, problem-solving, learning ability. The most important role that play can have is to help children to be active, make choices, and practice actions to mastery. They should have experience with a wide variety of content, art, music, language, science, math, social relations, because each is important for the development of a complex and integrated brain. 
play that links sensory motor, cognitive, and social emotional experiences provide an ideal setting for brain development. If play is the work of the child, then toys are the tools. I like that. I love that. Toys are the tools. Through toys, children learn about their world, themselves, and others. Toys teach children to figure out how things work, pick up new ideas, build muscle control and strength, use their imagination, solve problems, and learn how to cooperate with others. This is the work of the child, is the play. And the toys are the tools of the child. So now think about the work that you're doing here. Even think about the play that you're still doing here, right? Our work, the work that we do, these tasks that we either assign ourselves or are assigned to us by people who are writing the paychecks, can teach us just as play teaches the children and taught us when we were children, if we care to let it. That's a big if. If we care to let it. If we can become aware enough to see the task within the task that we are performing at the same time that we're doing everything else that we do. Now, we're not going to be learning motor skills, most likely, unless we're learning something completely different that we've never done before. But we certainly are going to be learning new relational skills. We're going to be learning about service. We're going to be learning about how service connects us, how relationship is the outgrowth of this deeper identification that we have with each other. Connection is what underlies everything. And as we do these tasks, if we do them well, but we do them with this deeper sight, we can realize that we are also feeding that deeper connection. We are becoming more and more aware of it. Now, as we work for future outcomes, because that's what work is always focused on, right? Some sort of future outcome. So as we work toward those, and we must do that, can we also be focused just on the process, on the tasks that we need to do to get there? And when we're talking to people in, in early recovery, it's always just deal with the next indicated step. You know, don't think about the big picture. Don't think about the there out there or the outcome that you're looking for. Don't think about 20 years of sobriety. Just take the next indicated step and the one after that. Can we be focused on the process, the individual task that is right in front of us as we're working for this future outcome so that it can teach us about ourselves? Only when we are immersed in that, moment by moment, in the task that we're doing, is that task going to teach us through the task, within the task, more about ourselves? And again, only if we're really caring to listen. Are we really caring to listen? Can we focus fully on each moment, each step of the process to see the connection in the work that we're doing? Because who we really are, and this is the, how are we going to be connected if we don't know who we really are? But who we really are can only be seen and understood. It only makes sense in the connection, in each moment of the step of the process, in the work, in the relationship. That's the only place that our identity is going to make any sense. When Jesus said, I and the Father are one, he was talking about a dynamic relationship, a relationship that was in motion. That identity made sense in relationship. Our identity is only going to make sense in relationship. It's not about the role that we play in a relationship. 
It's about the fact of the relationship, the underlying connection of the relationship, our ability to identify with another person to the extent that we're willing to drop our defenses and become vulnerable enough to be connected. That's when we start to get the sense of who we are. Not an identity we can put in words, but one that we feel deeply. Even if it's inexpressible, we know that we know that our identity makes sense in the relationship, in the motion of the connection. Our tasks create motion. That's what they do. Whatever you're doing, whatever you do all day long, whether working in the garden or going to a concert or doing your job, it's creating motion. And if we're focused on that motion, if we are aware that we are flowing in the field of that emotion, of that motion, then we're in the spirit because the spirit's always in motion. And so as we do these tasks, the outward task, in the motion, not thinking about a static outcome, as soon as we're focused on a static outcome, we've left the motion of the task. We've left the motion of the spirit flowing through our lives. And we're no longer connected. And connection is everything. This is how we learn connection. When we've learned connection, we also learn humility at the same time. It's in connection that we can see the true relationship that we have with each other. That we're no better and no worse. We can see the relationship we have with everything around us, all of creation. We can see the relationship we have with unseen God. But only in the motion of that relationship, the motion of that task. In this way, we can start to learn to love the things that even maybe we don't love so much. If you don't totally love your job, But to be able to approach your job in this way, to be able to see the task within the task, the connection that is there, latent, under the surface, just waiting to be engaged, it can change the way that you approach things. You know, when I was younger, it's getting to be more and more remote, but when I was younger, I used to hate small talk. I hated it. I didn't, you know, I, I, people would be talking about news, weather, and sports, and, and whatnot, and man, it just so, not only disinterested me, I was a bit of a snob, I have to admit, you know, it just seemed beneath me. I didn't want to engage in small talk. I wanted to talk about the weighty things. I wanted to talk about the big things. You know, truthfully, I still do, you know, but I realized that small talk has a place. I remember a friend of mine, I overheard him talking to somebody else, and he said, yeah, Dave is just not the kind of guy that you can sit and BS with, you know? And just to tell you where I was, I took that as a compliment. It wasn't a compliment. You know, because I wasn't relating to the people around me. They didn't feel comfortable just being around me. Yeah, they partnered with me and we did projects together. But as I look back, my relationships with most of my friends were all project-based. I connected with them because I had a project with them. We didn't just hang out and BS. They didn't feel comfortable doing that. I didn't feel comfortable doing that. I remember watching a movie where, you know, this woman was talking about, oh, a group of guys were, were talking about baseball, and this woman just says, I don't know how you guys do that. Talk about, you know, you know all the, the, the numbers and, and you know, the, all the, the hits and the this and the that. I mean, it doesn't mean anything. And then one of the guys says, you know what, you're right. You know, baseball is just a game. We count everything, and <laughs> it won't mean anything. But I'll tell you what, when my father and I, when I was a kid, we had nothing to talk about, we could go to a baseball game. 
and we could keep score and we could talk about the game and what happened in the game. And it connected us in a way that we couldn't do otherwise. Now, baseball was just the task. But what was the task within the task? You know, the small talk was a task. And I didn't like it and I didn't want to engage in it. But I didn't see, I didn't understand. The task within the task was so vital. To get good at small talk, to be able to see the connection that comes just in talking about things that maybe have no innate value, at least not tomorrow, but they certainly do right now. Because you're the kind of person that someone can just sit down with and do the big exhale and just relax and be and connect and know that you care. Your presence so much more important than the words that you say. Just small talk. Think about the things that you do all day long, the things that you enjoy, the things that you don't enjoy. Why don't you enjoy the things you don't enjoy? I guarantee you it's because you're looking at some static outcome and you're not engaged in the moment anymore. You're not, in see, not even seeing how this does connect in some way, or could, if you just let it. This is what we're talking about when we talk about finding the task within the task. Whether it seems beneath you, whether you hate it, it can teach volumes if we can start to see it in a different way, if we can start to see how it connects us. Now, figuring all this out you know, took me years. It took me a long time. Hopefully, it won't take you so long. But figuring all this out is really what the midlife crisis is all about. Now, midlife crisis. We, have a, a <laughs> we don't really understand what the midlife crisis is anymore, I think, in our culture. In fact, I've been reading articles lately that say the midlife crisis is a myth. There really is no midlife crisis. I beg to differ on that point. But maybe crisis isn't the right word. Maybe that's our problem, because we think of a crisis being something that maybe our midlife crisis is not being experienced as, at least in the moment. Maybe we should call it the midlife stomachache. Maybe we should call it the, the midlife brain fog, like I was having this morning. Maybe we should call it the midlife uh, burnout. Maybe we should call it the midlife low-grade depression and low-grade anxiety. Maybe we should call it the midlife sense of despair, ennui. Don't you love that word, ennui? Discontented boredom, nice French word. Because often the midlife crisis presents in all of these ways. And often when I talk about depre depression with someone I'm, I'm counseling with, I'm not depressed because they equate depression with sadness and they don't feel sad. But how does depression really present? It presents as a lack of energy. It presents a sort of a grayness for everything, even the things you used to love to do, just don't hold any energy for you anymore. It presents in, in a desire to um, isolate. It presents in a loss of appetite. It presents in so many different ways that you don't necessarily associate. Any one of those symptoms can mean a lot of different things, but you put them all together, and guess what? You're depressed, child. That's where you're at. You, know? you don't necessarily have to feel sad. And you can be in your midlife crisis at any stage of your life, starting at least in your mid-30s, most likely is when it really starts, because that's half your functional life, at least. And these symptoms are really a call to a deeper sense of meaning and purpose. We've been talking a lot since we've been doing Wednesday night with uh, Richard Rohr's book, Falling Upward, talking about the first and second halves of life. 
And so the first half of life that is focused outward, focused on the task, right? The external physical task, whether it's your job or whether it's a sport, whatever it happens to be, it's focused on that. Extracting meaning and purpose from accomplishing that well and the outcomes that you do achieve, building a platform, building a foundation for life, building a family, building a career, that's the first half of life task. And it needs to be done and it needs to be done well. As Rohr says, you need to build a good container so in the second half of life you can pour the real content into it. But if you don't have that strong container, if you don't have a strong egoic sense of self, then you're not going to be able to take the next leg of the journey. So that's important. But when you get out to your 30s or 40s, what starts to happen, if you've been exclusively focusing on meaning and purpose out there somewhere, that starts to wear thin. You start to feel the edges of burnout starting to creep in. The work that you were so passionate about a while ago, a few years ago, you're not so passionate about anymore. You don't see how it really works anymore or how it accomplishes what you set out to accomplish in your 20s. That's the call to something deeper. And we can answer the call or we can ignore the call. If we ignore the call, then we've got to go back and we've got to double down and we've got to try to just do it better and stronger and harder. And eventually we get to the caricature of the midlife crisis, which is what we think about, right? You know, the guy going out and working out and uh, red sports cars and affairs and all of that. Why? Because he's going all the way back to childhood, the last time that he felt alive quote-unquote, felt that something made sense. If he's not willing to go forward, the only place you can go is backwards. Remember, nothing's really static in life. We may try to hold it so in our minds, but if we're not moving forward, we're moving backward. If you're in a relationship, if you're not moving closer, you're moving further apart. If you're not putting energy into the relationship, then you're drifting. You may think that you're not, but that's the truth of the matter. This is what the midlife crisis is doing for us. It is trying to show us that there is the next place that we need to go. We need to find those tasks within, those interior and relational tasks, to find the search for meaning from within that will then reinfuse. It's not that we're going to stop doing the exterior tasks. We need to do those as long as we're drawing breath. But they can be reinfused with energy, vitality, and with meaning once we start to see how they relate to the real purpose of life, which is all about the connection. If we can do that, maybe our stomach ache will start to subside, you know, along with the burnout and everything else. Now, how do we do this? Well, here's where contemplative practice comes in. This is where we've been leading to in these last few Sundays. Contemplative practice is going to be the formal process of learning to step away from the thoughts, the behaviors, and and those patterns and those emotions that are drawing us away from the present moment, drawing us away from being immersed in the moment and the task of the moment. Being able to take steps to get away from everything that keeps us anchored to external tasks, keeps us seen outward and not turning and looking inward. Keeps us focused on possessions, keeps us focusing on accomplishments, on performance. No matter what we say we believe, if all of our activity, and all of our fears especially, are focused on accomplishment and and accrual, then we're really not moving in the second half of life. And we don't even realize how much 
unconscious hold there is on us with all this stuff. How much unconscious hold our core beliefs hold on us? It's unconscious by definition. We don't understand how much it holds onto us and what it takes to detach. Y'all remember the movie The Jerk? Now we're going way back. I went, took you back to 1984. I'm taking you back to 1979. I don't know if you remember The Jerk. It was the Steve Martin comedy. Anyway, um, he plays this uh, uh, developmentally impaired, I suppose you would say, um, white boy who thought he was black and was being raised in a black family. Remember I was born a poor black child? And this is Steve Martin talking about as white as you can get. But anyway, through, through a series, uh, it's, a, it's another hero's journey, but kind of an absurd one. But um, as he's going through this, he, he finds uh, this, this woman he falls in love with, and he's getting married. They have this huge fight, and he, she's, she says, well, then if you're not going to be the person that I married, you can just leave. Well, I'm going to leave then. There's this great scene, and I want to actually read you the script because it's so perfect. As he's leaving the house, you know, she's crying. He's walking, backing out of the room and then backing down the hallway and then out on the, sort of the street wearing a bathrobe and his pants around his ankles for some reason. I don't know. He says, well, I'm going to go then. And I don't need any of this. I don't need this stuff and I don't need you. I don't need anything ex- well, except this. And he picks up an ashtray. And that's it. That's the only thing I need is this. I don't need this or this, just this ashtray. Oh, and this paddle game, the ashtray and the paddle game, that's all I need. And this remote control, the ashtray, the paddle game, and the remote control, that's all I need. And these matches, the ashtray and these matches and the remote control and the paddle ball and this lamp. (laughs) The ashtray, this paddle game, and the remote control and the lamp, that's all I need. And that's all I need, too. I don't need one other thing, not one. Well, I need this. And he picks up a chair. The paddle game and the chair and the mo control and the matches for sure. And this, he picks up a magazine. And that's all I need. The ashtray, the remote control, the paddle game, this magazine and the chair. And he's walking outside. And I don't need one other thing except my dog. The dog's walking toward him and growls at him. Well, I don't need my dog. I, it was just, it was, it's, it's hilarious and it's absurd on one thing. But if you watch him do it, not just me read it to you, it's, it's this parody of really what's going on in our unconscious. We say we don't need these things. We say we're going after the four S's, right? Silence, solitude, stillness, and simplicity. But how much is that really working against us in terms of what is happening deep inside? How much are we still walking through life picking up this or that? I don't need anything except this. Oh, I still need that, you know? Those of you who have moved houses, how hard is it to part with your stuff? And no matter how much you purge, you wish you had purged 50% more when you get to your destination, right? We hold on to this stuff, and we don't really know why. Haven't touched it in years, but I can't let go of it. I still need this. <coughs> this unconscious hold that the things have on us is really what we need to take a look at. It is so hard to let go of these drives, these things that we're not even aware of. Now, usually, for most of us, we don't do it voluntarily. We don't just let go. Life has to come along and strip us of this in traumatic ways. We face loss in one way or another, whether it's the the death of someone we love or whether it's a loss of a job, whether it's a physical impairment now or a health issue. No longer can we do the things that we did or hang on to the things that we are hanging on to. 
but we have to let life strip us from trauma and through failure and through loss rather than do it voluntarily, which would be so much kinder and gentler if we just would put it into practice, right? And that's how it worked for me. You know, in my early mid-30s, I had to have the trauma of a lot of loss and I had a full-blown crisis was the right way to put my midlife situation, you know. But I needed that because I wasn't ready to let go voluntarily. I had to have that crisis. I had to let life do a lot of the work for me. Take a listen to how Richard Rohr puts it when he talks about the task within the task. He says, it takes much longer to discover the task within the task, as I like to call it, what we are really doing when we're doing what we're doing. We had to do the wanting and the trying and the achieving and the self-promoting and the accomplishing in the second half of life, we start to understand that life is not only about doing, it's about being. Most often we don't pay attention to this inner task until we have had some kind of fall or failure in our outer tasks. If the agenda of the first half of life is social, meeting the demands and expectations our circumstances ask of us, then the questions of the second half of life are spiritual addressing the larger issue of meaning. The psychology of the first half of life is driven by the fantasy of acquisition, gaining ego strength to deal with separation, separating from the overt domination of parents, acquiring a standing in the world. But then the second half of life asks of us and ultimately demands relinquishment. Relinquishment of identification with property roles, status, provisional identities, which will, in the end, be experienced as a newfound and hitherto unknown abundance. Here's the thing. We think we're giving these things up and giving them away, but what it is opening us up to is an abundance that we couldn't even have anticipated, imagined, before we open up before we let down the shields, before we become vulnerable. This is what Jesus is trying to tell us in all his poetic, paradoxical ways that don't make any sense to the rational mind. But this is what he's trying to get across. You cannot lose, is what he's saying. No matter how much you give away, if you're doing this with this kind of contemplative awareness, with this sight of being able to see the Father has already given us everything. The older brother thought he was being shaved off because the younger brother was getting a party. He already had everything. This is what we don't understand, and this is what we can't understand until we have gone through this process. Contemplative practice, as we're going to talk about it, and we have been talking about it, mimics life. It is a controlled sort of I mean, control to the sense that you show up for it. It's a voluntary way of creating the little deaths that life will create for us until it gives us the big death at the end, right? All those losses, all those traumatic failures, all the things that we go through are mimicked in contemplative sits when you just sit and you allow all of this to fall away from you to be able to experience what it's like when you stand outside of that bubble outside of the bubble that is screaming at you that you need this ashtray, you need this lamp, to be able to get outside of that bubble and experience what it feels like to realize that you don't. 
that there's an abundance that you couldn't have imagined before. It's kind of a bloodless stripping away process, right? You don't have to actually shed any blood. doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, but of course it does. This process is going to disturb you no matter what. But it doesn't have to cost you quite as much if you can voluntarily start to show up for it, to begin to use the four S's, to establish silence and solitude and stillness and simplicity in your life, to create the space for the awareness that is needed to really be present, which is what we can't do when we're in the midst of our compulsions. Now, we're going to use the four S's in contemplative practice. We can use the four S's just in everyday experience. That's what we talked about last Sunday. We can start to bring silence and solitude in and let that grow in us, the stillness, the interior stillness that we can carry around with us wherever we go, even into frenetic activity that we still have to be a part of. Just get on the freeway, all right? Can you be still when you're driving the freeway in heavy traffic? And the people behind you that have no patience for how you know, fast or slow you're driving, even though there's a car one car length ahead of you, can you still maintain your stillness then? Can you maintain your simplicity in the face of everything that this culture is screaming at us that we need? And we will be better off if we have. So the four S's are also creating this awareness for us. But we also are going to then more formally use meditation and mindful presence and the techniques of those to be able to also get us to where we need to go. Remember, the, uh, the work, the play is the work of the child, and the toys are the tools. So the meditation and the practice, are the, uh, the, the practice of mindfulness are the toys that are the tools of our contemplative practice that are going to be able to take us to the task within the task, to be able to see that in all of our waking moments and not just during that carved out time and be able to take us to that second half of life experience. Well, we've got to be careful here. We've got to be precise when we talk about meditation and we talk about some of these activities. Because if these tools of contemplative practice, contemplative practice are to take us where we want to go, then they really have to be stripping away our connection, our egoic connection, stripping away our sense of need and the fear that's behind that, detaching us from the complexity of all of these things, if it's really going to work. And a lot of people are telling me when I talk to them about these things that I'm already meditating. Okay? And then I ask them a little bit more about what they're doing and how they're doing it. Most of them are using meditation apps, you know, things you can put on your phone. I don't know if you're familiar, familiar with those. And, uh, and some of them are really good, and there's nothing wrong with them as a starting point. But what they typically employ is a background, either music track or some kind of environmental track, whether it's rain or wind or surf or something like that, or a combination of the two. And then there's usually a voice track. It's either guided imagery or it's affirmations or whatever it needs to be. And they have all these different types for the different things that you're working on in your life. Now, those are fine as a starting point, as I said, and they're fine in terms of getting a person at least to set more quietly. But what they are also doing at the same time is keeping the conscious mind active. If you're listening to a voice, then you're still thinking in terms of words. If you're listening to music, you're processing that. And so they really become kind of training wheels on the bike that we eventually are going to want to pull away because 
even meditation itself, the word meditate, what does it mean to meditate on something? What does it mean to contemplate? Well, in, in our colloquial language, we consider that thinking deeply about something. But we want to do the exact opposite of that. So to be able to start, if you're going to start with an app, to pull away the voice and then pull away the music and eventually pull away the environmental track so that you're absolutely in silence, in solitude, and starting to build that. What we want to do is get to a state of choicelessness. To borrow from Cynthia Bourgeau, it's choiceless awareness. I like that. Because you are not really going to quiet your mind in meditation. You're not going to quiet your mind when you're going through your day, even if you're completely mindfully present. You're going to be aware. In fact, if you are actually contemplatively meditating the way we're talking about it, you're going to be hyper-aware of what's inside and what's outside. But the difference is you're not going to choose to focus on any one thing and think about it. That's the choiceless part. Hyper-aware but choosing not to bring your attention to a point, which we would call a thought. When you bring your focus and attention to a point, now you're thinking about it. And we choose not to do this. Choiceless awareness. Is our contemplative practice, whatever we're doing, even if it's Brother Lawrence style, just being aware of everything we're doing, just do what we do all day long, but with a sense of awareness of presence, that meditation, mindfulness, practicing four S's, are we doing that in such a way that we're getting into that choiceless place, that place of choiceless awareness? And of course, even if we're working, we don't have to be thinking in words about the task we're doing. We talked about that. You can be aware of something without thinking about it. You can do your job awarely and be even more efficient and more productive if you're not also having a monologue going on at the same time. That's where we're trying to get to be able to come to that place. It takes time to get to this place, to achieve the, the ability to be able to do this in a repeatable way. And it's only over time that we slowly start to realize the changes that contemplative practice produces in us. More often than not, people, other people will notice the changes in us before we're going to notice them in ourselves. All the way back, and I didn't realize it was so long ago, but I think it was 2013 that Frank and I went to the Desert House of Prayer outside of Tucson and spent uh, three days, and it was completely silent there. Frank had a lot of problem being silent. He'd find me on a walking path to whisper in my ear because he just couldn't. I loved it, being the introvert that I am. I just thought it was great. But I I booked a, a session with one of the priests there as a redemptorist order, and we sat down to talk. And one of the first things he said to me is, is, I can tell you've been doing centering prayer for a long time. I was just me sitting down, but there was something that he could see in me. You know? And I'm not just saying this to pat myself on the back. I'm more in like, when we do this, we won't even recognize the different effect that we're having on other people and how they perceive us. Now, he was trained, of course, in centering prayer. And so he recognized that. Another person who's not, they're still going to see something different about you. And if you can do small talk, yeah, see, we're going to be able to hang because you're really present and you can talk about news and weather and sports. This is where we're headed with all of this. It's got to be real practical. It's got to take us down into a, a, a place where we're living life on a different pitch. And as we do contemplation, as we do the four S's, you know, we want to think, okay, if I can just achieve this nirvana state, and then I'm there, I've arrived, I'm enlightened, right? It's like, no. 
Think of contemplation more like muscle tone, right? You gradually work up to it, and as soon as you stop, it just atrophies right back out again. It's a, it's a lifestyle change. It's not a crash diet. It's saying, this is the way I want to live my life for the rest of my life, to continue to keep showing up and practice this, keeping everything lubed up and muscles toned and everything going so that I am aware and I am really perceiving life as all of one thing, not a bunch of disparate things that I have to worry about and, 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 and anxiety over. I can just be, completely be, and see myself as part of the oneness that life begins to present. This is so hard to express. In fact, it's impossible to express directly in words, but poets do the best job of anybody. And I wanted to end by reading you just a, an excerpt of a poem. And it's in your um, handouts if you want to read along with me. It's a T.S. Eliot, who's one of my favorite poets. And these words aren't going to make a lot of sense, I guarantee, in many ways. Once you have experienced the kind of contemplative um, awareness that we're talking about, it'll make more sense. But I don't even, I wouldn't even say that it made a whole lot of sense to him as he was writing it. But these are the words that came out. He said, for most of us, there is only the unattended moment, the moment in and out of time the distraction fit, lost in a shaft of sunlight, the wild thyme unseen, or the winter lightning, or the waterfall, or music heard so deeply that it is not heard at all, but you are the music while the music lasts. These are only hints and guesses, hints followed by guesses. And the rest is prayer, observance, discipline, thought, and action the hint half-guessed, the gift half-understood, is incarnation. Here the impossible union of spheres of existence is actual. Here the past and future are conquered and reconciled. Where action were otherwise movement of that which is only moved and has in it no source of movement, driven by demonic thotic powers, and right action is freedom from past and future also. For most of us, this is the aim, never here to be realized, who are only undefeated because we have gone on trying. We, content at the last, if our temporal reversion nourish, not too far from the yew tree, the life of significant soil. I don't know if you could tell me what that means. But what it does, it paints a picture of a different level of consciousness when we let go of the rational egoic mind and just step into pure presence. It takes us to different places where you will sound just as confusing as you try to express your experience as Eliot does here. This is where Jesus wants to take us. Believe it or not, to a place beyond what we can think about, define, put edges around, put under glass that only exist in real time while the music lasts. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much again for this time that we spend together. Thank you for everyone who is willing to 
sit through these words and at least consider putting the kind of energy we're talking about into a new way of approaching you. God bless every one of us. You bless every one of us. Willing to put forth the energy and the effort to find a deeper connection. Father, I know you love us. Help us to pull out all the stops. To let go of everything that needs to be let go of in order to find the connection with you that'll change everything. Thank you, Lord. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.